Up next, on episode 78 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff sit down with the developers of Litmus App and Doctype to discuss ASCII versus Pixels, the power of Amazon EC2, and the unglamorous but critically important topic of backup from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. You have accidentally tuned in on a phone conversation between me and Jeff, and you've just like somehow the wires have crossed and you're listening to our weekly uh, you know, Stack Overflow planning sessions. And so there's no introduction or music or anything like that. We just kind of cut in at some point, uh, a little bit random at the beginning. But this week, um, also on the line uh, with us, we have uh, the staff of... Litmus. Litmus.com? Litmus.org? Litmus app. Litmus app. Litmus app. <laughs> All right, because you didn't get the domain name you wanted. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which we know of uh, mostly through uh, what is pretty much a side project for you guys, right, which is Doctype. That's right, yeah. Um, so uh, on the line with us, uh, and I'll just uh, ask you guys to introduce yourselves one at a time. We have uh, David Smalley. Hello. Hey, David. Where are you? What do you do? Where are you from? Uh, I'm in Leeds. Uh, I'm a co-founder of uh, Litmus with Paul and Matt. Um, I'm a I'm a Rails developer and kind of sysadmin for uh, for Litmus. Okay, that's a good idea to have the developer also be the sysadmin. We've discovered this week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and we have uh, Matthew Brindley. Are you also in Leeds? Uh, I'm in Durham, actually. Just, uh, it's all the same about for me. An hour from Leeds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'm whatever. The, uh, it's all Mexico, kind of... as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's near Newcastle. It's in England. That'll do. Okay. Um, I'm uh, yeah. I'm the backend developer. Um, so look after, and I program in .NET. .NET, uh, really? Yeah. So you guys have both .NET and Rails. Yeah. Well, all our uh, we use Windows servers to do all our testing on. Uh, so it's all C sharp .NET. Uh, oh, which I suppose you have to because you're like launching little browsers and stuff behind the scenes yep. and doing things. Yeah, definitely. And with all the kind of automation stuff in Outlook and Notes, there's like com wrappers for it, for, uh, for .NET, so it works out quite well. And Paul, you also in Mexico? Paul Parnell? <laughs> I'm in Boston. Boston. Uh, we, just, we just opened an office over here, so I'm, uh, uh, I'm based in Boston now. I used to be in Leeds. And I'm our kind of CEO. I, I do our design work, but I also kind of do everything else that I can to um, take things that are not programming related off the plate of everyone else. Basically. That's what being a CEO is like, I think. I, I mm-hmm. definitely noticed that is you, you, you wind up doing everything until you can hire individuals who specialize in some of those things that you were doing. But you still, for, for the first 10 years, you're going to have, you know, like taking out the trash kind of things that you're the only person. <laughs> yes. I, although I have yet to, uh, didn't, didn't you once unblock a toilet for a day or something? I've yet to, have uh, to do that. Michael, Michael Pryor had to do that. But I'm still like, <laughs> you made Michael do that? Yeah, well, no, he just thought he could do it. But I'm, I'm still uh, like, um, uh, you know, there's still code that has to get written, like internal, uh, like pay the salespeople their commissions code that I'm like literally still writing because there's just like mm-hmm. at some point there's nobody else there and I wind up doing everything that's left over. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I tried writing some commission code the other day and uh, and. And David comes in and rewrites it all because apparently it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what, what Litmus is and what, what Doctype is. Sure. So, um, so Litmus is a, a compatibility testing service for web designers. Mm-hmm. So basically when you're building websites for clients, you need to do cross-browser testing. Um, and Litmus helps to make that process easier or part of that. Uh, and then we also do email testing. So uh, email marketers or web designers who are doing uh, like HTML email campaigns use Litmus to get screenshots of that campaign 
campaign across different email environments before they send it out to their clients. Uh, that's the essence of it. And so kind of Doctype was a natural extension of that for us because we have a you know community of um, you know that's a couple of tens of thousands of users who are all you know pretty much experts in HTML, CSS uh, for web apps and uh, email campaigns. And so it was kind of cool for us to be able to build a community to bring those guys together um, because this compatibility testing stuff can be really difficult. You know, we've all kind of struggled with browser bugs and stuff. And so Doctype is um, meant to be a, a Q&A community uh, for web professionals uh, to help them kind of debug each other's uh, HTML and CSS code, basically, for, for web pages and email campaigns. Cool. So it's just Doctype.com, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's also, it's also kind of, a, a, technically speaking, it's in the family of Stack Overflow sites, even though you guys have your own entirely separate platform that's completely different. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we were, were completely influenced really by, um, by Stack Overflow and the, and the success of that. Um, but we, at the time, the, the Stack Exchange platform wasn't around. And um, what we've also done with Doctype and what we were quite keen to do is integrate the screenshot system that we built for Litmus into the Q&A site. Mm -hmm. Because when you're trying to, I mean, when you're trying to describe a, um, you know, a browser bug with your website, that's pretty difficult to do in words. Uh, right. And so what you really need is a screenshot. So to say if everyone who added a question from needing to run their own screenshots and upload those, uh, we do that for them. So they stick in a URL, tell us which browser the problem is on, and we attach the, um, well, in fact, the source code, HTML and CSS of their page, as well as a screenshot on the browser that's having the problem. So then people come in to fix it. Oh, yeah, I see, you know, it's the... Uh, margin double margin bug in IE6. I know what that is because I can see uh, that that's what the issue is here. So, so let me. I, I have a I have a good League of Web Justice story. So, <laughs> one of the reasons we we looked at this sort of semi partnership that we have was a. I thought their work was really cool. What they had done was really cool, and I was I, I thought it was really uh, you know great that they were inspired by us and built this whole thing. And particularly because they were serving an audience that I don't think we serve particularly well, and this by design, and that's designers. Because, I mean, if you go to, you know, their website, I mean, this is a site for designers by designers. And I don't think anyone would go to Stack Overflow and say, this is a site for designers. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's ability to, I think, gives us the ability to sort of reach out to that audience and say, okay, we have something for you. Maybe I, part of the, Stack Overflow is like kind of like the opposite of a site for designers. Uh, <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a site that hates designers. Well, we, I want, think, we want to poke your eyes out. <laughs> well, I would I would go quite that far, but I mean, there definitely is a very, very large historical divide between you know the programmers and the, and the designers. And I think the way I explain this to people, and maybe it's wrong, but this is the way I explain it, is one is very focused on pixels, and the other is very focused on ASCII text. I mean, like ASCII, no UTF-8, just ASCII, right? Like ASCII art, really simple stuff. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that you're serving the ASCII audience, I don't know that you can serve the pixel audience the same way. I think they're very different audiences and they have different needs. Um, there is yeah, some overlap. I'm going to make I an EPCDIC site, actually, <laughs> nice. for people that don't like ASCII. <laughs> nice. It'll be a very, very it's be small target Mainframe community. overflow or COBOL meltdown or something. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's called add one to max int. That was a COBOL joke. Never mind. Because there's also a limit to what we can do, you know, with the time that we have and the, yeah, the projects that we're taking on. Sure. So I, you know, I, I've never viewed this as like we have to get all the web traffic. We have to own everything. I mean, the web is just the synthesis of a bunch of great sites. And I think the more you reach out to other sites, I think it, it actually strengthens your platform. I mean, it's not actually a weakness. It's a source of strength. I, I think that's just the way the web works. And... I don't know. So that's why I enjoy these partnerships. And my little partnership story. So another site we partner with is HowToGeek.com. They're sort of the editorial side of, of, of SuperUser, very you know, in, informally, right? Right. Uh, well, HowToGeek mentioned on Twitter that he was having a tremendous difficulty formatting HTML email, which is – HTML email is particularly difficult because a lot of the oh, email yeah. clients are like, like crippled browsers. Like yeah, they're yeah. not even like – In Outlook, it's capable. Word. They're just, it's just Word. Yeah, it's like beyond, <laughs> you think IE6 HTML is bad? Yeah. You don't even know. It's much worse. Yep. And he was really struggling. I was like, oh, I have a solution for you. I have a, when I was in London, they, they hooked me up with a full Litmus uh, account. And I was like, oh, let me hook Ooh. you up with the Litmus account. That's exactly what this is designed to help people with, is to take the email, render it in all the email clients, so you can actually troubleshoot much more effectively 
um, you know, when you, you don't necessarily have Lotus Notes installed, you don't know what it's going to look like in Lotus Notes, but somebody's going to view your HTML email in Lotus Notes and you have no clue what it's going to look like, right? That's the problem that's trying to solve. So he was, he was ecstatic. I mean, he posted on Twitter, he was like, wow, this tool is great, totally solved all my problems. So it was good to bring the League of Justice together that way. That was very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. How, how do you, um, uh, wait, we should record this for, for, as, a, as a podcast, right? Oh, wait. We yes. Never mind. Sorry. Sorry, I'm not. We definitely want to record to this as a podcast. Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> Question for you. I guess, Matthew, I guess. How do you do this? I don't understand. How does this work? Yeah. How, do you, how do you render all these things and send them back to the people? I mean, what's the... Oh, and before uh, I answer... There's uh, yeah. quite a few different parts to it, but uh, the gist of it is like so, some clients, such as uh, Lotus Notes and Outlook, have APIs, um, yep. which made my job a lot easier. They're usually COM-based. Uh, Microsoft have written some wrappers for .NET around the COM stuff, um, but they're all hideous to work with, absolutely horrible. But there's some uh, kind of an API where you can actually give it some text and get like a HBitmap or something? It's not that quite that nice. Unfortunately, what you have to do is you, you still have to trigger like a send and receive. It has to pap th pass through their kind of collection interface. You can't just... Outlook supports some stuff, um, but we, we tend to just do it with IMAP or POP. We'll kind of put something in the box, make sure it's collected it, and then begin automating by opening the client, uh, opening the email, capturing it at different resolutions, that kind of thing. So it sounds like there's a lot of uh, timing-dependent things where you, like, your script goes off the rails because you hit maximize and it took an extra second and a half and yeah, it could be. Yeah, we, it, for the first sort of six months or so, we were dealing with that. You wouldn't believe how many dialogues Microsoft Outlook can produce about the most irrelevant information, and they're modal, so it kind of locks everything up. And I don't know. It, it, we had a lot of fun there. Uh, Notes was the same. It's all kind sure. of all kinds of crazy things that it can come out with. But after a while, we've you know kind of catered for everything that's likely to happen, uh, and we have this huge collection of emails that we can pass through when we introduce a new client to see how that client might throw up silly error messages and do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, so each time we add one now, it's a bit easier than it was at the beginning. Like Apple Mail actually was quite straightforward to add, and we already had like a backlog of emails we could pass through to to see Apple all the. Yeah. So that means you put, you have backend Max as well. I guess you have to. Mm, we have an XServe uh, uh -huh. that runs uh, lots of Leopard VMs and Snow Leopard VMs. Yeah, really? we run Mono on it just so we could share some of the code, uh, which is interesting. Uh, and then we have a very <laughs> small Objective C app because I know some Objective C, but I'm I'm far stronger in .NET, so I, I try to use Mono for as much as as humanly possible. Um, but a lot of the kind of Apple Script stuff uh, wasn't really available to Mono, so we used Objective C for that. And wow. you have a lot of servers for all this stuff, right? How do you provision those servers? Well, we use uh, we use Amazon EC2 for all the Windows stuff, which is when Amazon EC2 came out and we first tried it. I, I was so pleased; <laughs> it was uh, it made my job so much easier. Because before that, we were just buying more and more servers, or rather, renting them from uh, from a fast host in the UK, uh, and it's ju it was just painful setting them up, installing because we got to install like every web browser, all these different email clients, and a lot of them don't play very well together. So you have to spend a while configuring them so they're not constantly trying to steal the default status and, and all this kind of thing. Um, but with EC2, we keep seven perfect images, differently configured machines, different uh, versions of IE and Outlook and so on. We keep seven absolutely perfect images, and then we just boot, uh, or we launch rather, instances from those images. Uh, so, And we actually, I've written a, an application, uh, I'm quite proud of it, it basically kind of scans the demand, uh, sees how busy we are at any point during the day, uh, and it'll start more machines or, or get rid of machines depending on, on the demand, because we see kind of, of the overlap between Europe and the US during, during the day, we see, uh, obviously the demand goes very, very high. During really? that time we have, a, yeah, but during that time we see up to about 400 uh, machines, that's how many we're running. What? Um, but, but on the yeah, you're running four hundred machines at a time. Yeah, our Amazon EC2 bills tend to be quite. How big large. is your company? <laughs> How many customers do you have? Well, then, we, Joel, it's it's because of the technology. They have to spin up all these VMs yeah. to do this work. It's just the nature of the work. Yeah, but Still. I mean, if you because think about, it, I mean, Lotus Notes takes thirty seconds to start. Uh, so, I mean, that kind of gives you an idea, and that occupies the entire machine while it's starting. So, it can be quite inefficient. Goddamn, uh, Ray so, Ozzy. <laughs> so however, however much you're paying them, Joel, it's not enough because they have to work with Lotus Notes. You understand? These are people <laughs> who have to – they should get combat hazard pay for yeah. working with Lotus Notes. I uh -huh. mean that – yeah. We had uh, one of the Lotus Notes uh, developers, Damien Katz. Has been He's reformed, though. He doesn't really count. He's all reformed. 
He, you know, <laughs> one of the big things he did is speed up some major part of, of Lotus mm -hmm. Notes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I should, I should say Notes 8 is much, much better than the previous versions because we have 6.5 and 7, which look very different to Notes 8. Uh, Notes 8 is much nicer to work with, and the API has been improved as well. So I should probably point that out. But did Notes have anywhere to go but up? I mean, how could they make it worse? Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> is that even possible? This is, don't forget, this is an application that started out as a DOS app. Oh, wow. I mean, give them credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I will always go out of my way to kick Lotus Notes because it just it's I've I've had to use Lotus Notes and I, I'm still recovering from that experience. But uh, I, I I'm extremely impressed from a technical level that you guys are you know able to set up all this, these clients and you know generate all these basically screen captures. I mean it's just scripting, right? It's not like you said. There's not really formal APIs for this stuff. It's like no, you know yeah. script them, take screenshots, and just you know pipe that back through the app. Mm. And I remember when I talked to you guys in London, there was some discussion of like the original version of this was was quite put together with <laughs> duct tape and bailing wire, and I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, that was me that built that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not a formally trained program. Um, yeah, it was it pretty. Worked, uh, supposedly, it was great right? basic to begin with. Yeah, it basically used macros uh, and uh, and a site in VB script. But yeah, it worked for a few months. It got us some customers, and then we were able to kind of spend some money to rebuild it. Basically, we basically rebuilt the whole thing uh, shortly into that. But yeah, it was um, it was okay for a while. That's yeah. actually Jeff. When we're going to rebuild Stack Overflow, that's actually not <laughs> that uncommon. Like I know I wrote the big thing about how you should never throw it all away and start over, mm. but it's <laughs> but you really should. Well, <laughs> it's not that uncommon in a startup to build something like you want to build. A lot of times you can build a really quick prototype just to see if you can get some kind of customers and you just hack something together that you know is super ugly. And if it becomes very successful, I mean, Twitter is probably an example of this. If it becomes very successful, you may have to re-architect it in a completely different way and rebuild it all from scratch because it's just not physically possible to continue with what you have because it became something very different. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying when you should. I mean, a lot of times you look at what you have and it's fine and it's working. But you just feel like you should write it because the code's a mess or it's ugly or something like that. And that's, I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, you built something with um, Lotus 123 keyboard macros and it's running your whole business. <laughs> and you've built a pretty good HTTP listener in Lotus 123, the DOS edition, with keyboard macros. But you can just replace that with Apache now and you're probably, you know, the world's gotten a little bit better. Uh, so, you know, sometimes you rebuild it. Or, you know, your business has changed so radically from when you had to support one customer to supporting 8 million customers doing something every 13 seconds. Mm. Yeah, I think from a business point of view, the, the EC2 thing was just crazy for us because mm. prior to that, like we were buying, we had to buy enough capacity as a service to match our peak demand, right? But that peak demand lasts four hours a day. Well, don't so you have, I mean, people know that they submit something to Litmus and it gets in a queue and they got to wait for it, right? Or does it yeah. just always come back right away? Uh, well, we, that's, I mean, that's what Matt's check demand thing is, is trying to achieve is that it should be roughly the same amount of time to receive your results at any time of the day, even when we're busy, because we scale up the number of servers to match that. I mean, it's not, you know, absolutely perfect. That's cool. But, uh, you should, you, know, you should be like, you're like poster boys for, for, for Amazon EC2, actually. Do they, yeah, uh, does Amazon invite you? Really? Um, yeah, yeah, they did, didn't they? They gave us like two days' notice to prepare, so uh, we had to turn it down. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is a textbook case of where EC2 is a huge win, right? Mm -hmm. That's Unless not just to... academia or something, which I think is probably the biggest use case for EC2, yeah. and kind of spinning up supercomputer grids. So, talk a little bit. About, so, I understand why you have the C Sharp .NET uh, sort of team members because what's interesting to me about your team is it, it kind of reflects a little bit of the philosophy of Stack Overflow. That was the other thing I liked about it was that you guys have Rails developers and you have C-sharp developers and you're not religious. You're like, okay, we're just building a solution using whatever tools we have that we like and, and that we need to use. And that really appealed to me. And so talk a little bit about, I guess, the Rails side of, of, of what you guys do. Well, yeah, I mean, the Rails basically came about because I... Uh, left uni and decided I didn't want a full-time job and uh, thought I'd be a Rails developer. So when it came around to uh, rebuilding Litmus, uh, it was just the three of us, quite nicely split out between our kind of areas of specialty, which was good, Paul on the design, Matt on the back end, me on the front-end website. Um, and yeah, so we did, we're not really very uh, uh, religious in our 
programming. We've been quite um, pragmatic, I guess is the word. We uh, we just just need to get things done. You know, we do test it. We do a lot of testing now, but back in the early days, there just wasn't any any time to test. So you know, we just kind of got on with it and built the product out. And uh, so it's just me doing the rails now. Um, we don't really need anyone else. Um, I mean, I guess it would be nice to have someone else to help me, but it, it's not really necessary. It's really kind of uh, Matt's work that needs a big team um, because of all the stuff that's kind of constantly changing, all these new clients and webmasters and stuff. But the Rails site is, I mean, it's good for writing a, 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 a front end to a website. I mean, Twitter is, I believe the front end is still Rails, even though kind of on the back end, obviously, they've built out with Scala and stuff like that. It's still just Rails on the front end. It's nice to work with uh, when you're building a front end app. I wouldn't dream of trying to do <laughs> any of the kind of complicated stuff that we're doing on the back end with with um, Ruby, let alone <laughs> Rails. I mean, obviously, Rails isn't suited for it, but, you know, it's, um, yeah. But Doctype itself, the site Doctype, so Litmus is the, the service that actually generates yeah. the screenshots from both the browsers and the mails. Um, and that's a revenue-generating service, obviously. People pay for that service. Uh, yeah. And then Doctype, that's entirely in Ruby from end to end. And when did you guys start? Like, give me the, the timeline of, of this the Doctype thing. Well, I think it was in May that one of our employees, um, Jonathan, uh, kind of recommended where he... It was an idea that Paul had been batting around for a while, kind of creating a community, and then we'd obviously all been listening to the Stack Overflow podcast, and Johnny said, well, look, let's just let's just make a site. So I was actually working uh, somewhere else at the time, full-time, and just working on Litmus in the evening. So I moved over to Litmus full-time, and then I think probably, was it the end of June, Paul? End of June to the start of August, we kind of wrote the whole thing from scratch, just me and you, yeah. just batting things backwards and forwards, really. Paul was drawing designs, I was writing code to go behind it, we were sending things back and forward, getting the team to look at it, and then just trying to get it out as quickly as we possibly could. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's where Rails obviously helped there. It's quite quite quick to prototype things and get them live up on a server really quickly. Um, Are you guys I believe in- also... Sorry. So what about the state of the, the Doctype community? I honestly don't have... I keep, like, trying to find questions that I can ask on Doctype, but I'm just such a programmer, you know, that it's like hard to come up <laughs> with something designer enough. I thought I had something once. I was so close. It was like the spacing issue that I couldn't figure out that that was very subtle, but I eventually kind of figured it out. So then I kind of fizzled out. And But I, I struggle like figuring out what to ask on Doctype. I mean, I know what to tell people. It's the whole pixel versus ASCII divide, uh, but I'm so far on the ASCII side, it's hard for me to even relate. So I thought maybe but you guys obviously interact with designers a lot more. I mean, what's your, what's your take on the community? Because, you know, community building is this weird thing, as you know. Because when we tried to fold you guys in, there was all this resistance from the uh, Stack Overflow community. They were like, what is this crazy Doctype thing? And we don't know if we even like this thing that you've, you've told us is now sort of related to Stack Overflow. And they were kind of getting a little pissy about it, frankly. Um, <laughs> which was weird. I was like, well, how does this hurt you? Just ignore it if you don't like it. You know, it's like, but they actually, it was good because they were like, okay, this is our community. And they felt very yep. defensive about, and that's ultimately coming from a good place. But I guess what I'm asking you is, I, I don't know much about the Doctype community. What's your impression of like where the Doctype community is? What you know? What's that look like? Where is it going? What's what's happening over there? I think it's um it's it, what was good for us. I remember you guys talking on the podcast about like how many people do you need answering questions uh, to create a good kind of Stack Exchange community. Um, I think one of the benefits we had is because we had you know all these people using Litmus who were already really talented in this area who we could tell about Doctype. Um, and a lot of those guys got excited about it uh, right up front. And so we had a good kind of base of experts who joined straight away. And then kind of since then, we just kind of the stats just gradually go up. You know, the page views and the number of people signing up and the number of questions is like just a very steady rise um, kind of week upon week, really. Um, we've got at the minute, I think we're at about 3,500 users on there uh, and a little over 1,000 kind of unique questions. And I think on average, the each question, like if you take an average, has about three answers. But things seem to get answered pretty quickly. You know, you get answers within an hour or two. Um, and we've got kind of those top ten users uh, on there who are just amazing and are just answering things and moderating things and editing things. Um, and so that's just been incredible for us to have those people that are really, really passionate. But there's a lot of people who just kind of dip in every now and again, 
you know, ask a couple of questions, answer a few things. Um, and as I say, you know, it just kind of gradually growing and we're pretty happy with that. Um, how do you, of, um, how do you get people from who are litmus app users into doc type? Cause that was one of the, one of the biggest questions that we get all the time from people making stack exchanges now is like, how do I get people to go there? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, we, um, what we've done in, when you use litmus, when you get your results, we have a way of like marking individual results, like a screenshot as either compatible or incompatible. Hmm. And what we've done within Litmus is when you click on something and tell us that this is like not working, this is incompatible, we give you a little pop-up uh, suggestion box which says, why don't you go and ask this question on Doctype? We've got this community of people who will help you figure it out. Uh, and so oh. that's at the minute the, the integration we have between the two to kind of um, you know direct these people who exactly hey. at the moment where they're having a problem. Jeff, that gives yeah. me a great idea. Okay, what's your idea? <laughs> What we should do is if somebody can't get their programming question answered on mm -hmm. Stack Overflow, like they're just getting no answers and they're putting mm -hmm. up bounties and everything, we can mm -hmm. pop up a little thing saying, why don't you look for a new job? <laughs> you won't have to solve this problem. Find <laughs> your CV here. Here are some job listings for your area. <sighs> well, that's, that's, that's a proposal. <laughs> so let's talk Thanks. about did you guys pick uh do you have time to pick like a representative or like a fun doc type question that you like yeah like so a, do you want to pick a question on doc type yeah to talk about i i had i had one um i, I guess and this is cheating kind of because i i answered it but um go ahead, i thought it was an interesting question it's about um give me give me the give us the url yeah so it's uh it's doctype.com uh where are we here sorry doctype.com forward slash lowercase a, capital Z, capital V. We don't have question numbers. V is in Victor. Ah, I got it. How does Doctype generate the screenshots they use on the site? Oh. Okay, cool. So obviously when we covered this in terms of, um, you know, we're using Litmus to do the actual screenshot, but then when you actually see them on the Doctype site, they have this kind of, they're 3D and they look like they're kind of paperclip to the top of the page. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and stuff with your shadowing and things. So on this question, I posted the, um, the image magic script that we use in the background that converts like the full scale 1024, 768, whatever it is, screenshot uh, to this kind of 3D paperclip little piece of paper, uh, which is kind of cool. So basically, Joel, we kind of, I, I should point out that when I first forwarded doc type to Joel. I was like, hey, look at this thing these guys created. It's really cool. Joel's like, oh my god, that, 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 that little the paper effect. He loved that. He's like, that's so great. We should totally do that. I was like, we don't, I was like, we don't even do screenshots. This is so far outside <laughs> of our normal you know, things that we do that it's not even like possible. But yeah, that's very cool. Well, we have CVs. You could have your little CV could be pinned to your chest mm -hmm. or something and with that wow, same kind of cool. effect. To your that's chest. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that would be a very nice look, I'm sure. That wouldn't scare people or anything. Uh, that's good. So, Joel, let's hop to the uh, listener question. Listener question. Let's take a listener question. I want to take a listener question that's kind of related because we're talking about sure. uh, building. Uh, um, here we are. This is from uh, Travis in uh, La Crosse. Hello, Jeff and Joel. This is Travis Fisher from La Crosse, Wisconsin. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and the website, so keep up the great work with Stack Overflow. I have a question for you. Um, I have a music-based Stack Exchange site called KeyMiner.com. I've been working on it on and off for the last month or so, just getting all the pieces together, and I'm finally really, really ready to push for users and traffic. Uh, on a previous podcast, you had mentioned that getting lots of good questions is really key to the success of a site. I have a ton of questions in mind that I'm going to start seeding the site with. However, I would also like to approach other members of the online music community in order to get a great foundation of content and users on the site. Uh, question is this, what have you found to be the best selling point when giving the elevator pitch to people unfamiliar with your site? Obviously, the unique value offered by a Stack Overflow type site is that you have a much better version of the online knowledge exchange format um, for any given topic. But is there a specific angle that you guys have found most effective for getting people to check out the site, or is just a basic explanation of the site good enough for Stack Overflow? Thank you in advance for your input and feedback, and keep up the fantastic work. Well, that's an interesting uh, question. But it, I, yeah, mm. I, I have a thought. Let me share my thoughts. Right. So I, 
I think first of all, like let me use Stack Overflow as an example. So you have a topic. So in Stack Exchange, you know the topic is really important because you got to pick a topic that's narrow enough that you can actually build a commu- community around it. Versus let's just talk about everything, right? That's that doesn't work. That's that's proven not to work. So picking the community is the first step. Did, what kind of community have you picked? And that sets the tone for everything. Uh, how many, you know, the size of your potential audience, the sort of the tone, the the type of people you're going to attract. I mean, the topic sets a lot of that. So picking a good topic. You know, it kind of sets the parameters around what you can and can't do. Like when we picked, you know, uh, sysadmins for server fault, there's certain limitations with that community. E.g., it's a small community, smaller than programmers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not as vocal. <laughs> um, so it's it's more of a challenge to build a community there. So that's just the nature of the beast. There's not much I can do about that. Versus programmers who you know love to talk about themselves and love to talk about code. It's a little bit easier. Um, so I, I think you got to know your community, and I don't know the community well enough to comment on that particular aspect of it. Uh, Beyond the parameters of the community and the topic, um, probably the number one thing to think about is what problems are you solving for people? Like what, what are they going to type into a web search engine that will eventually take them to your site? That's, and, and when he talked about seeding it with questions, that's absolutely the right thing to do because you want to think, you know, people are going to have problems that they're just going to type stuff into a web search engine. Mm-hmm. And you want to be on the receiving end of that. Mm-hmm. So the, the fir- job number one <laughs> is getting sort of the common things in there, uh, even if you have to do it yourself, right. uh, so that you can be a destination. And then once people are there, um, then that's when you talk about sort of capturing them, saying, okay, this is such a fun place to participate and has you know very high quality of discourse that I kind of want to hang around here and talk to these people and like answer questions and stuff. But I think to think about it in terms of you know, build like an, an island where people just want to hang out is kind of the wrong way to go. You got to think first about why am I even on this island? Like, why would I go here? What, what am I trying to accomplish? You know, that's what you want to think about first. And then community is kind of the secondary part to that. And I think a lot of people have romantic ideas about, oh, people are just going to want to come on our site and just hang out and talk to each other. And I, I, I don't think the world works that way, but I have a particular <laughs> way of viewing well, the world. It does, but it's hard. I mean, you have to you have to give them something that they're looking for. You have to get a critical mass, like in order to get from. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking about how. All right, like Jeff, you and I started blogs, and we just started publishing randomly, and right. to some extent, we were writing things that maybe people wanted to read, or were willing to read without poking their eyes out, and you know, for a while right. at least, and uh, and uh, and so they came and they read that, and once you have, I don't know hundreds, thousands of people coming in a day, 1% of them are going to like it so much that they're going to kind of try to poke around and say, you know, is there any old archives here I can read? Is there anything else I can do? And then you can start to maybe hope to capture some of them in a community. But that's, only, that's, that's, that's going to be kind of a smaller fraction. So, so the number of people that you need, an important thing to remember is Stack Overflow. Um, how many, you just, we just did these numbers. How many uh, registered members are there on Stack Overflow? Do you know off the top of your head? Jeff? Uh, I don't. You're putting me on the spot, and I don't know. <laughs> um, we should be able to uh, figure that out, right? Because we can just go stack over. It's a fairly large number. Uh, I mean, I, okay, I so want to say it's 70,000. Users, like 70, users is the number of registered users, right? And we, well, you've got to realize when you talk about users, we have some weird parameters. Like, we aggressively call out people that aren't doing anything on the site. Okay, that's exactly what I want. So how many are there on one, one page? Each page is 7 times so 35 per page times 3337 times 35 is about 116,000 registered users actually doing things on the site. So let's say 100,000 just to round, yeah. round it out. Um, we have 6 million global visitors every month. So that's one sixtieth of the people that actually come to Stack Overflow ever, you know, because they found a Google answer or whatever. One sixtieth of the one sixtieth of them actually hang around for any longer than just their one page view, and maybe you know become a member and actually do do a little bit of something on the site. And, 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 and stay around. Well, yeah, contribute in some way. So there's so, a lot of yeah. passive read-only type behavior. Yep, yep. yep. So if you're going to get, uh, if, you, if you think that what your site needs is a critical mass of 100 key users who are in there banging away, uh, you, need to, you need to tell me how you're going to get 6,000 people uh, to come there every month. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's kind of the scale that you're thinking about. And to think about something like that, you know, if you email your Facebook friends, and there are 200 of them, and only 20 of them care about music, that's not going to be enough. If you know of a, you know, some kind of a music school or a music club or any kind of musical institution, they have, a, they have an email mailing list, 
and you and and it's got sixty thousand names on it, and you can somehow get them aware of it and hope that you know ten percent of them click through, then you're starting to get to the right kind of critical mass you need. But you really have to think about bringing in the larger, you know, the larger audience uh, in order to get that 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 core smaller audience that will make it successful. Well, it's interesting that you brought up the blog because I think. You have to be willing to make a Herculean effort of your own to even begin to succeed. I mean, this is kind of my advice because, you know, that's why yeah. in the Stack Overflow graph, blogs was a, was an inspiration for Stack Overflow, the way blogs work. And it's a very strong sense of individual authorship. And you have one person producing really good content. And it that takes is going to attract. It takes, it it takes, takes to get a, a reputation. Yeah. All, these, uh, all the instant successes like the Joel Spolskys and the Jeff Atwoods of the world, <laughs> we were toiling away in obscurity for nine years. Before and then we, we jumped the shark. Instant successes. Well, well, some of us jumped the shark even before we became successes. <laughs> I know. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so just don't be afraid of putting in tons and tons of effort of your own. In fact, I think you, you have to have the mindset of, right. I'm going to make this thing useful for me no matter what. Like, if nobody else uses it, I'm still going to get benefit out of it. That's the attitude that you have to have. Now, um, the other way you can do is try to, try to get, get a partnership with somebody. Like, I'm thinking about, um, you know, startups. Uh, uh, Answers.onstartups.com was kind of successful because Jason Cohen and Dharma Shah got behind it, and they have a big community of people that are interested in learning about startups. So if I were looking at the music, uh, you know, the person, the first person I, the absolute first person I would talk to is, what's his name? Now I'm going to be embarrassed. Uh, the the uh, founder of CD Baby. Oh, uh, I know you're, I know you're talking about. It. I don't know his name. And he's he's all over the Derek internet these days. Sivers? Derek Sivers, exactly. Derek Sivers. Sivers. Thank you. Um, you know, here's yes. a guy who has a huge following among musicians because of CD Baby. I mean, huge. Uh, and a following among startup people. And he's starting a new company right now. And you can reach, you can reach him. He's out there because he's on Twitter. And he's writing interesting blog posts. And he's the nicest guy you will ever meet in the world. Uh, and, um, you know, this might be somebody that is, is, is able to, you know, take 0.0001% of his audience and just introduce him to your site and get 100 real musicians in there. Uh, and, and that might be... Uh, uh, that might go uh, a long way, but you have to be thinking on that kind of scale of like, how am I going to get the, the, the big... Uh... Right. I mean, that's the role, Joel, that you and I played for Stack Overflow. Yep. We cheated. I call that our cheating. We cheated mightily. And we but, knew that, you know, that was going uh, to be necessary. Yeah. yeah. So I agree totally. If you can get some big public online persona to sort of come out and at least talk about your site and support it, or even better, mm-hmm. just become like the godfather of the site, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um. It really pained me that we couldn't find anybody like that for, for server fault. We really tried, uh, but that turned out to be very difficult. Although we did have the podcast with Tom, which I thought came out really nice. Yeah. So that was, that was good. That's a great question. And I think everybody that starts a Stack Exchange has common questions. But please, i got to urge you not to romanticize. And by you, I mean right. the people starting Stack. Please don't romanticize the idea of building community. It's extremely, extremely difficult, and it takes years. Yeah. And, and if you don't start out with that sort of mindset, you are going to be so crushingly disappointed. Yeah. So it's a general rule of life. Just satisfy yourself first because that's the, the only guaranteed thing that can happen in life is you can satisfy yourself. So if you're going to just start the stack exchange with the goal of satisfying yourself, putting your own content on there, just building exactly the way you want. And then if anything else happens, that's great. And there's, a, there's some tweaks you can do, as Joel and I pointed out. But you know, just satisfy yourself first so that you're not disappointed. I, I think the first thing that you have to do is make something that's useful to somebody. I mean, yeah. that's one, one of the mm-hmm. things, if you're going to be bootstrapping a company of any sort, and you guys definitely did this, uh, you know, with Litmus app, uh, there's no question, you, 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 you have to say, the very first thing I have to have on the first week is something that is useful to somebody, even if it's just one person. If it solves one right. person's problem in one way, so they can give me a few dollars, then I can stay alive until next week, and then hopefully solve more people's problems. Uh, if you have something that is just not going to work, I mean, you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, make a new jetliner by, by yourself. You, you don't have the resources. <laughs> so if you want to go up against Boeing and Airbus. That's going to be pretty hard. But also, if you have something that requires a certain amount of critical mass, and I hate to say it, stack exchanges are in that category, you better go get that critical mass because the stack exchange just is not going to work with four people uh, uh, no matter what. It's just, it, it really isn't. It's going to need you know, at least 100 active people, so let's say 6,000 passive people. Right. Um, it's, it's a long, hard road. Yeah. yeah. So maybe if, if, if you don't if you don't have the community, maybe try to build it in some other way. Go go collect names on MySpace or wherever it is that you're going to get the musicians. <laughs> uh, Probably uh, one yeah. of the biggest lessons I learned out of uh, building Litmus. I mean, we started it in 2005. Mm. How many years was it till we were profitable, Paul? <laughs> uh, well, about a year. 
What did you wait? Wait, wait where's all the money coming from in the first year? We, um, we we started selling accounts before we even launched. Basically, we did a pre-launch offer. Uh, we went to a conference, so I did handed out loads of cards, got people excited about it, and then um, yeah, we we kind of gave them like a trial mm-hmm. uh, before we launched publicly. And then um, like the day we launched, we sent out an email to the mall and said, "Look, you guys." Helped test it for us and gave us feedback. Here's a deal instead of um, I forget what the price was at that time, twenty nine dollars a month. You can have it for uh, for nineteen, something like that. And um, and we got kind of the first I don't know fifteen twenty customers from that uh, thing. So basically, from day one, we had uh, you know for of actual public launch, we had people who were paying a monthly fifty. Right, you had time. some small number of people for whom you were actually providing some some benefit, yeah. and then you just had to, and then it just takes years. Of, hey, uh, did you guys ever take any investments, or? No, we didn't. We, we did at one point take a, um, a a very small bank loan just to help us uh, expand a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that was just like me personally. Uh, we haven't taken any outside money. And now you're happy and you're profitable and you're rolling in the dough. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's going well. <laughs> do you get well, calls from in the dough. Do you get it's calls coming. from venture capitalists all the time wanting to invest? We in get business? we get so many calls. I've had to set up a uh, like a text expander snippet to uh, to reply <laughs> to them because I got fed up <laughs> saying the same thing like every week. So. You know what I like to say to the you 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 get you get emails from these like low level associates in venture capital mm-hmm. firms, mm-hmm. and I always like to say to them, I'm sorry, but I don't really take you know uh, take. Jo- um, take um, proposals over the transom. And I like to say that because VCs are famous for just basically ignoring any proposals anybody send them to fund anything. And they're like, well, sorry, I only take things, you know, introductions from people I know. Yeah. I, only, I don't want to listen to just any random <laughs> schmuck. <that anybody. laughs> no, so I kind of like to throw that back in their face. And and uh, I know I know these uh, Litmus guys are doing well because they're actually hiring because they're using Stack Overflow ah, for years. Yeah. Oh, good. I wanted to mention actually we um so we 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 tried out the beta of that yeah and we were, we were searching for two new programmers uh, in Boston yeah and um by the time we got on the beta we'd actually already done our interviews mm-hmm. and we'd shortlisted the two people who we wanted to send offers to yeah when I did the search on uh, on the Stack Overflow Careers site to narrow it down and see if there was anyone else perhaps we should interview the top guy who I found through there. Uh, was one of the guys who we were sending a job offer to. Yeah. So it, it worked, um, and it worked. he's actually now starting, starting for us in January. So we, we, although we didn't find him directly through careers, because it wasn't up at that point, uh, it, it, he was the top choice through careers, and it was somebody that we'd already got, in fact, through the John Software like, job board. Oh, you put, um, you put it on the John Software job board? Yeah, both cool. of the people we hired came from there. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's great, uh, yeah. Seems to work very well. Okay, I need to get. I'm going to have a salesperson call you up, get a testimonial for the website. <laughs> <laughs> we're actually, yeah, we're trying to get, we're trying to build success stories. There actually have been a few. In fact, I just sent Joel another one today. Yeah. So it's working. But the challenge for us is like, unfortunately, I guess I can blame myself. The scheduling was really bad because this is obviously the worst time of year for hiring. I mean, Thanksgiving, Christmas. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's already That's working, okay. which is yeah. encouraging. Uh, and then hopefully through the new year, it'll, it'll work even, even uh, better for people. Right. So we're continuing to grow it. I mean, it's this. It's it's a marathon. I mean, it's the same basic advice I was giving earlier. It's it, like we're gonna we're gonna do this thing for years. And we're gonna make it work, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let me let me move on to. I have a super user question, which is related to the events of the past week. And I realized that the podcast we did last week, which hasn't been published yet, but will in the sequence. Seventy seven is funny because in podcast seventy seven, Joel and I spent at least five minutes talking about just talking through scenarios like what's the worst thing that could happen to your business. You know, like what's the most catastrophic? I'm thing glad that podcast was lost to. Uh... <laughs> no, no, no! It's coming. It's coming back. It's just the order of publishing. Yeah. Uh, and that turned out to be prophetic because in that week we actually had uh, not on Stack Overflow server, on like an unrelated server. Well, an indirectly related server that I have sort of had for a while. It's just sort of been a bonus server that's been floating around. Uh, actually, had a hard drive failure. Uh, and we actually lost some data as a result of that. And there's articles all over the web about this that if you're really curious, I'll link to them in the show notes. I'm kind of actually a little tired of the topic. At this point. I am so tired <laughs> of the topic. Let's move yes, on. I'm a little tired of the topic, but I do want to cover Back the up. super user question because okay. when, yeah, I, when I was bringing this up on Twitter, I was mentioning, you know, that was sort of the real-time stream of like, okay, I just found out from my provider they lost a lot of our data. That really sucks, et cetera, et cetera. And then somebody pointed out, I was like, well, why don't you ask on super user, you know, 
what somebody should do in this scenario. And I was like, that's exactly what I should be doing. I was like sort of slapping my head and saying, well, duh, I should have just documented what I've done on SuperUser and then solicited input on like, okay, what would you do if you're in a situation where you had a website and due to, you know, situations that are sadly, you know, <laughs> in the very sad state of affairs, you've lost all your data. What do you do? Yeah. Uh, so I documented what I had done. This is the philosophy of asking a question. You don't ask a question of like, okay, solve my problem for me. It's more like, okay, I had this problem. I try to do these things. I'm not entirely happy with the results. I don't really, you know, you've got to put in some effort. And I, at that point, I had put in some effort. I had used this tool uh, called Warwick, which is a really weird name, but it's like a Perl tool that tries to retrieve from a variety of different internet caches, like copies of your website. Right. Uh, and I had bad results with that, actually. I was banned from Google, like, instantaneously when I used this tool. Uh, right. It was actually shocking how quickly I was banned. I think they actually have heur heuristics to detect this tool. Yeah, I get, you know, I, if I do a lot of math questions that I type in the Google box, I get banned from Google. So it's not... Really? Well, if you just start typing, if you're just doing a bunch of multiplication and division and stuff like that, which I tend to do just by going to the Google box and clicking it in there... <laughs> At some why, point, why don't you use count.exe, man? Because it's there. Cause the Google box is on my screen at all times. I just click on it and type something in and hit enter, you know, and then you can edit it, which you can't do with calc. How much carbon do you think you're burning by, like, sending these requests across the internet? Oh, millions <laughs> and millions of metric tons. Are you kidding, Jeff? This is, this is the source of at least two degrees of global warming. Uh, well, <laughs> how much division do you think I do? Uh, anyway... Uh, <laughs> You know, three or four of those in in rapid succession, you're going to get uh, Google um, showing you, uh, you know, asking you to type in the Magna Carta, you know, where it shows really? you some blurry word and you have to unblur it for them. Well, okay, there's the automatic uh, capture, capture, which actually we do that on on Stack Overflow as well. Sure. In fact, that was inspired fast. by Google. Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, they will just flat out ban you. Like, I mean, uh, okay. I was banned to the point that I couldn't, I couldn't look at any cached page because it said, oh, we're seeing a lot of anim automated requests. Hey, you know, it's only, it's only fair. We got so many hits from Google, from Google employees using Stack Overflow that we ban, you banned their Google Mountain View campus. <laughs> we banned some <laughs> router. Yeah. There was some scenario, yeah. Um, yeah, they just, they so, just all spend, the, the Google programmers just all spend all their time in Stack Overflow trying to get help doing their jobs. Mm. I do. So I should Good. mention that we do actually do that. We actually check our logs and anything really weird that happens from an IP that we don't like that looks really suspicious. We will ban that IP yeah. pretty much indefinitely. So I, I understand where Google is coming from. I don't fault them for this, but it makes it really difficult to do this <laughs> to restore your web page. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh -huh. to restore your web page because you're getting banned everywhere. A lot of the sites that do the caching, like archive.org. I didn't realize how rare it is for an entity to be on the web just archiving not just text. Text is kind of trivial, but like images yeah. is ultra rare. There's almost nobody on the internet doing this because I guess the obvious bandwidth and storage and all even, the problems. Even like Google Image Search has got like nothing. It's got no, it's got practically no pictures no. on there. Well, they can't, they can't cache images. That would be a legal vulnerability for them. They can only show thumbnails. There was this whole lawsuit oh, about Oh, of course. Yeah. You can't store too much fidelity because then people will sue you because they're like, oh, you're copying our images. There's actually a, literally a lawsuit. I'll have to look it up in the show notes. Okay, good point. But that's the, so the thumbnails that you'll get from Bing and uh, uh, Google are going to be too low quality to be really do anything useful. Maybe that's with. the next business model is just aggressively backing up companies that are not backed up. I'm sure them. there are companies that right. do this. I didn't no, have time to they would have. It. they would have called you. No, no, I'm not talking about you call them and say, I would like my website backed up. They just do it anyway. And then when you lose your website, they're like, oh, yeah, Coding Horror, I got that. That'll be $960. <laughs> you know, like the disk recovery companies. You know, you just you call them, you hope. They're like, well, you got a top 10,000 blog? I have it for you. That's, that's not a bad idea, but I think uh, the economics would be weird because you'd be – it's like the insurance industry mm -hmm. model, right? Mm -hmm. But You know, one out know. of a thousand of these actually hits, hits it off. You know, you know that there's a law a firm. project that did that. Really? I worked on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I <laughs> when I was free, a freelancer, uh, and and uh, they were trying to kind of spider and find other sites and take backups. First problem was they wanted to write it in Ruby. Second problem was they wanted to store the data in MySQL. And then the third problem was they then hired a lawyer that told them to cease trading immediately. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> All they were doing yeah. was just making this company had some serious problems. Wait, <laughs> yeah. David, was, was that David saying that the Ruby was a serious problem? Well, come on, you're the Ruby program. Oh, you you can't write a web spider in Ruby. Oh, okay, and store gonna, it. I'm going to get I'm going to get the hate mail. You're, you're just like nobody knows who you are. I'm going to get hate mail saying Joel's got all these guests on the show talking about how Ruby doesn't. They're just going to cry. Yep, it's fine by me. 
can't say anything negative about Ruby. Don't you know that? The mafia will kill you. So, so let me let me summarize this question. So you can read through, but the the short, the really the short answer is this is uh, if you know somebody. In my case, I cheated because again, I took shortcuts based on basically internet celebrity. But I actually know somebody that works at a uh, web spidering engine. He actually sent me a tarball of all the coding horror stuff. Um, and it is possible if you're very very patient to reconstruct text from the internet. Uh, the images is the real problem. So if you've lost all your images, it's, it's pretty dire. If archive.org doesn't have it, and archive.org servers are very, very slow and kind of unreliable. Yeah, I don't <laughs> so know good why luck. they're so yeah, bad. The, the real solution is basically to go back in time and have a backup. <laughs> yeah, well, you get Superman to fly around the Earth really fast backwards. But I do want to emphasize that if, if you're patient enough, you can always reconstruct the text. I do believe that because there's so many spiders spidering the web. And there, there's so many entities just keeping all that text essentially forever. You know, one of the things that I lost at one point, I, I, and it was a fat finger kind of thing. I don't remember how I, how I did it. Uh, I, I used to have this spreadsheet where I kept all my financials. So every account, bank account or whatever, brokerage account that I'd ever opened, every mutual fund, every, every you know, the, the deposit on my apartment, it was all in this beautiful spreadsheet that had every single transaction except for cash that I'd ever done. So if I'd ever purchased something with a credit card, there was a row for it. It was just way too organized, right? It was like my own personal, and it was, and I was doing this because I was working on the Excel team back in the old days, and I just wanted to, you know, have a chance to exercise Excel a little bit uh, and to kind of dog food it. And I, at some point, I just lost it, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to take this as an opportunity to just leave that part of my life behind. I'm not tracking my finances anymore. There will be no more data entry of every single credit card charge into a spreadsheet. Just over. Just. Not doing it anymore. So you could you could have used this as an opportunity to just you know say I'm not blogging anymore. Goodbye. Coding R. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm sure that would have made many people very happy. But sadly, <laughs> sadly, I did not do that. But I did take the opportunity. I mean, some good things came out of this. I think, like anything else, it's just you know you reflect on it and think, okay, what can we do differently? And it was the opportunity to sort of switch platforms on WordPress. I'd been very unhappy with WordPress on Windows, so we switched to Linux for that. And I'm actually moving some of my other blogs around to like other hosts. I'm basically diversifying mm -hmm. my server strategy because having everything on one server, although I'm still a little bitter that they don't have RAID of any kind, that's kind of annoying. Uh, I don't know how you RAID, build you servers. Know, I don't think RAID, I hate to say this, RAID does not get you higher. I, I don't think... Uh, well, it, it, it's not a backup strategy. I mean, you'll find all these no, pages... No, I know. It's supposed to be a hard drive failure strategy. Yes. But for every hard drive failure that it, that it solves... It introduces five RAID controller failures. Yeah. People that have but worked with RAID will just a, tell you this. Okay. They'll tell you the controller zaps all five of your drives, and then you're just toast. Okay, but okay. Let me put a caveat around that because okay. in the case that I'm talking about, all I think they needed was mirroring, which is the. I mean, that is brand right, right, yeah, damn simple. Raid one or something. Yeah, I don't care how much your RAID controller fails unless it catches on fire. Right. You just pull the other drive out because it's a binary copy of the, the data. It's, but the trouble is RAID sometimes five, that's what happens to your hard drive is that the binary thing got corrupted in some spooky way. It's yeah. possible, but I mean, we're getting increasingly obscure, but compare with RAID 5 where there's this striping algorithm, right, or something that's splitting the data across the drives, that's different per controller, whereas mirroring is just take a copy of the data on each drive. It's the same on every controller ever right. made, right? What, what did, uh, what actually, with your thing, what actually happened, what, did, did the hard drive failed? It just failed and they didn't have a mirror. So. Okay, so did they try to send it to one of those recovery companies that... Eh, I don't want to get into the details because I'm a little bitter about it. They did technically, okay. but I think they did it in a way that made it yeah, impossible it because they had run check disk on it already. And they, <laughs> let's try let's try a low-level format see if that fixes it. Well, exactly. I mean, at that point, they had messed with the drive so much that it was, I was like, why are you even bothering with recovery? You've run check disk. You've actually written all this data to the drive. So it's like... It's, they put it in the freezer? Did they try that? You know that trick? <laughs> like if yeah. the drive is starting to fail, you put it in the freezer, you get a few more minutes to copy down the data. But it, I think it's good for everybody, and actually, even on the Stack Overflow side, where we actually have quite a few, and I, what I consider to be fairly good backup procedures, although we're enhancing them, um, it's a good opportunity for everybody to think about, okay, how can we improve backup? And then Joel had a very nice article about stop thinking of it in terms of backup, but in terms of recovery. Right, like, have you done a recovery? Have you done a yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is great, because then you're focusing on, oh, wow, I need to think about all these additional things. It's not just, okay, I have a file. But like, what do I do with that file? How do I get the file on there? What other things go with this file? Yeah, uh, I don't mean to be preachy, valuable. but the, yeah, there are always anybody who's ever been involved with a with a surprising failure. They've gone back to their backups. Will tell you that they have always been surprised at something that they that they need that they don't have. Like, there's always something when you try to recover that never occurred to you when you were planning your backups because you're like, all right, here's all the important data. I'm going to back it up, and then there's 
you, you, the, the, the chances that you've forgotten to back up something or that you're just, you just didn't think it was that important or you thought you'd be able to reconstruct and it turns out you can't really. Like, just because you have the text of your blog doesn't mean you, – you don't have it, uh, Jeff, in WordPress format, whatever that means, right? Right. I don't you, have it in MySQL So anymore. does that mean somebody has to sit there and cut and paste lots and lots and lots of text into WordPress well, to reconstruct I, I, it? I have this thing called a programming language, so I can write a program. Is that what you're going to do? I mean, we can yeah. also just send it to India. But uh, yeah, but that's a pain in the. I mean, that's a pain in the butt, and it's not something you think of because you're like, okay, the words are safe. But yes, now you got 48 hours to you know cut and paste them to get them back into, uh, or to write that little code that does that to to, to reparse them and blast them into uh, back into uh, WordPress. Well, you know, to me, this is an example of success is kind of boring because success is like, what's there to <laughs> what talk can about? You, like, what can if, you learn? Well, what can right, you right. Learn from success? You can't really, honestly, you learn more from failure. It's really, really true. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not saying I wanted this to happen, but I'm saying right. it's amazing. I've thought about all these things I wouldn't have normally thought about. And a lot of people have been inspired by these bad experiences to revisit their own stuff. So that's a, a reasonably good outcome. Whereas if it yep. had just been business as usual, I mean, what am I going to talk about? You know, crap on Twitter, like funny YouTube videos? Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you could make an argument that, I mean, it's kind of useful for stuff like this to happen periodically. Um, it it's especially be useful for these like large clowns like us, large well-known <laughs> buffoons on the internet who like, I mean, we can, like I can, I can accidentally sneeze on Twitter and it'll be number one on Hacker News. Uh, Joel sneezes? Yeah. Has he jumped the shark? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it's awesome. I can get all kinds of, uh, we can get all kinds of great publicity for the people should do restores. Yeah. So, so since we're, since we're on the, the topic, when everyone tests their <laughs> sorry, wait, David is trying to say something interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I know. I said we should have an annual uh, Jeff Atwood day when everyone tests their backup procedure so they can do a full restore. Yeah. We can all take the day off. From all the, yes. So and since we're on the topic, briefly, I know backup is not sexy, and that's part of the problem. But what did you? What was your guys' approach with Litmus? Like, how do you? What? What? In in a nutshell, what do, what do you guys do with backup? Uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of my domain. Um, well, <laughs> we talked about this. It doesn't really, firstly, like all our customer screenshots and stuff are on just on S3, which I don't know that that doesn't really count as backup. I guess we we have faith in S3. I think um, I'm pretty sure that they claim that 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 anything on S3 is going to be in two different cities. Yeah, I think th I mean it, we're, we're reassured enough to. I know they've got that kind of. The uh, trouble, of course, is if you delete it. If you delete yeah. it, it's gone. Yeah. And now it's in zero cities. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we've got five terabytes of images. There's nowhere else we could put that, really. Do you, uh, does it, I mean, do, don't people submit things to Litmus and then they see the images and then they're done and, you know, if they come back tomorrow, it doesn't really have to be there? Yeah, I mean, we only keep images for, for a year anyway, so people kind of, once they're done, it wouldn't be the end of the world if they're lost. It well, look, the story, so. yeah. thing Sorry. is, we say we only uh, keep them for a year, but we, we don't, as of yet, we've never actually needed to delete them because S3 is so cheap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the admin involved in kind of going through those records and deleting them and removing the, the associated database records would cost us more than the S3 bill costs. So, What's, what's your S3 bill? I mean, just roughly. Probably 58 cents, I'm guessing. <laughs> it's a bit more than that now, but uh, Paul, do oh. you know offhand? Yeah, for storage, just for S3 itself, I think it's about 1000 dollars a month maybe 800 yeah. yeah this is for massive amounts of images i mean s3 yeah. is just trivial yeah. nine yeah. nine terabytes you said right five terabytes yeah five ter yeah a lot and then uh, all our other data i mean like all our source code for the rails side at least is uh, it's in git so every because uh, it's a distributed version control everyone's got a complete copy of the repository on their own machine and then it's on github and then it's on every single of the app machines so if we you know we've got like 25 copies of uh, the so source code. So what you have is a, back, is, a, is a backup strategy that sounds a lot like um, where Stack Overflow was at, but you haven't yet convinced me that you've ever been able to try to restore things. Although you do actually, you did tell me that you're constantly building new machines on, uh, on EC2. Well, the actual, yeah. I would say the most valuable data would be that in the, the MySQL instance, which is ridiculously well backed up, uh, as I understand it. Uh, and then finally, our images as well, which are, are backed up. I mean, they're enormous. It's a big job. Each image alone is 10 gig plus all its data. Yeah. They're, they're definitely backed up. We, we work hard on those. I think with the actual, the custom, sorry, I should say the, the machine images, the kind of, you know, like the VM, uh, our customer images uh, like we say, we just have them on S3, and we've kind of put our, our trust in them. Um, now, that's I mean, what's, the, interesting. what's interesting there is, is that anybody, you know, uh, 
somebody who's really paid to be paranoid would say, you know, even if they have it backed up and it's reliable and so forth and Amazon and it's secure, mm. all, all it takes is one subpoena from some whatever, some, some, somebody appears to have some child pornography on S3 anywhere, and then some idiot sheriff in whatever town has some Amazon data center goes and shuts down the entire Amazon data center, not realizing how many people he's messing with, and you have business interruption. So there's always like, like the, the you, don't, you don't necessarily need, now, um, see, this is the trouble. You can go on forever worrying about this. <laughs> exactly. Like, there's no end to how much you can worry about this. And it all depends on like how, uh, but, but, but shit like that does happen to data centers. And when you have a single company, it, it, it's kind of surprising how many people have companies these days that, that, that depend on Amazon, I mean, or, or Google. Uh, yeah. They're either using S3 or they're using Google App Engine or, uh, you know, Microsoft is building this thing called Azure. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, in all yeah. those cases, you know, Amazon might just decide that they want to get out of this business. They can't be bothered and you know, give everybody four weeks notice. <laughs> well, I think Rackspace, Rackspace have launched something similar to S3. So uh, I that guess if you're really paranoid, you could... Uh... That's, uh, and that's the big, while I'm bloviating, that's the big advantage of uh, Amazon's model over Google's model, which is that Google has Google App Engine, which is a very specific programming environment. You write yep. code in a very special way for their very specific programming environment. Uh, and you can run it on their very special programming environment and has MapReduce and all these beautiful things. Whereas EC2 uh, and S3, it's just like storage and servers. Just like if we yep. can't give you the storage and the servers, somebody else is going to be able to kind of clonk, clonk something together. I think there's even like, mm -hmm. like Ruby code, if you want, that emulates S3. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so, yeah. So, not, so we not, are pretty not, well backed not, up. Not, and I do... Oh, sorry, Jeff. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, online testing restores and stuff, I've worked at a couple of hosting companies and uh, I had it kind of drilled into me, testing restores. I regularly pull down our backups and check I can import all the databases again. And, and they're a pretty big database. I think our database is about 15 gig uh, compressed. So <clears throat> it's quite a long time to, to do it, but I still make sure I do it because I've seen too many times people go to, like you said, Joel, you come to restore it and you find out you're missing the encryption key or something like that. Which, yeah. <laughs> so used to well, be, I'm trying to remember what, data, what database system was it. I don't think it was SQL Server ever used to do this, but there were, there were always, every database consisted of, uh, oh, well, there's, the, there's a problem that people don't understand, which is that, the, for example, Microsoft SQL Server, uh, you've got, um, I guess, two files associated with every uh, database. And the files, if, if you were just going to back up those files, you have to back them up at the exact same point in time, which requires special <laughs> operating system calls. You can't copy one file and then the next one because then you wind up with a corrupt database that cannot be restored. So you either have to use SQL Server's backup operation, in which case it will do that for you, or yeah. you have to tell the operating system to give you those two files at the exact same point in time atomically, which you know uh, modern operating systems can do. Uh, but if you don't do that, and, and so there's stuff like that that people don't know, and they're like, I have a complete backup of my entire hard drive even the files that were in use by SQL Server, and then you go, and the first time you try to restore them, you discover that you have, uh, you know, your transaction log was taken four seconds after your original backup because you were just doing them one at a time, and they don't match, and you have a corrupt uh, database, and you're, you're pretty much hosed, I think. We, uh, we actually run a slave database uh, server that's kind of replicating with the master pretty much just to uh, deal with backups, and it has to be like the same spec as the master because it's still doing yep. the same kind of commits. Yep. Yep. So... Uh, because what I found was I started getting uh, alerts in the morning that the, the site had been really, really slow at like three in the morning when at this time I was only doing one back of a day and I do about four now we've got the slave server. But basically it was doing a whole table lock on like 10 million rows. Uh, when it <laughs> uh, so people were just hanging on, waiting for, you know, until request times out because they, were, they weren't getting any response in the database server. So then I set up the slave and now the slave does the backup. So I guess we've kind of got... Uh, two backups there, the data, and then it's compressed, encrypted, and sent up to S3. So, yeah. yeah. And that's that's kind you, of you use MySQL? Yeah, we use MySQL, yeah. Right. Okay, well, so I Joel, think we've exhausted uh, yeah. backup. Well, it's an important topic. It's not <laughs> sexy, but it, it's really important, as you can find out, and you can read about my blog entries about that. So... Right. But you want to close it up, Joel? Yeah, uh, we might as well, um, although I'm going to have to figure out the number of the podcast hotline. The Stack Overflow uh, podcast hotline is a phone number that you can call and, and ask us 
questions. And it is 646-826-3879, or you can email podcast at stackoflow.com. There's also a transcript wiki, which will be linked to from the show notes, which you can find on blog.stackoflow.com, newly restored. But, but um, Joel, they can ask questions and get T-shirts now. We've got to mention that. Uh, yeah, you might get some T-shirts. Uh, that's right. I've got to get Travis set up with a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Um, Travis T-shirt. Here, I'm, I'm making a note. <laughs> Travis T-shirt. Jeff's going to send you one of his old Hanes under, <laughs> under gear. <laughs> um, see you next week. Oh, wait, next... wait, 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 wait. Uh, we have to thank our special guest uh, today, Paul Farnell. Thank you. Uh, Matthew Brindley. Thanks. And David Smalley. Thank you. The, from, uh, you know, Leeds and, and, and Durham and, and Boston, uh, respectively. That's right. That's and right. check out Except Litmus. Reverse Litmus Litmusapp.com. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Litmusapp.com and uh, Doctype.com, a member of the uh, League of uh, uh, Justice. Justice. That's right. Thanks for being on, guys. See you next week. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.